0: Hello and welcome to the MGMA Insider Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. We're joined today by Doral Jacobson, founding partner of Prosper Beyond. Doral will be speaking about the total cost of care at MGMA 19, the data conference. Her talk will be Saturday, May 18th in Orlando, Florida. Hi, Doral. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Daniel. Happy to be here.
0: Now, tell our audience about your background in medical practice groups and where you've intersected or where you've become involved with value-based care.
1: So I have been in healthcare for over 20 years. Um, I actually started on the revenue cycle side, assisting a large practice with um, one of their claim shops. I've also got experience as a practice manager. I was an executive in IPAs for several years, and then I also have experience on the payer side, which has given me um, a nice framework for my consulting business. Um, Now I assist providers with really two two things, primarily value-based contracting and payment reform. And what's interesting is those two things, they kind of work hand in hand. as we transition from fee-for-service to fee-for-value and all of the reimbursement models are changing at different paces across the country, I have found it critical to marry those, those um, uh, concepts together and they definitely bolster my clients' success in the value-based contracting uh, world. We really are um, helping folks leverage their strengths to be successful in the value-based market. And it's very much about understanding alternative payment model mechanisms and, and thinking differently. So that's a little bit about uh, my background. And, and you asked how I'm involved in value-based care, and it's, I've got a, a personal story to share. Um, this was uh, something that happened to me about 16 years ago. I had um, My daughter was about two years old at the time, and she was diagnosed with something called strabismus which in fact is um, uh, like her left eye was lazy. So I took her to the um, pediatrician and the pediatrician said, um, oh, this is no big deal. Um, we're all babies have eyes that look like that. So let's give it a couple of months and do a recheck. I did, it still looked a little off to me and that mommy gut in me went off and I took her to the ophthalmologist who, um, who shared with me that the course of action really needed to be surgery. Um And not just one, but three, because the muscles in her eyes would change as she grew. So, of course, as a parent, this is horrifying to hear, um, and um, uh, so we went home and did a lot of research and identified a less invasive pathway, which was vision therapy. So fast forward, we chose the vision therapy route, and um, for significantly less dollars and no surgeries, um, my daughter's now eighteen, she's got uh, fantastic vision, and never had to endure any of that uncomfortableness, and we saved—I don't even know how many dollars on the healthcare side. So that experience really um, hit me, and I knew there were ways that we could be better, do better, and um, think about things differently from a healthcare delivery and reimbursement perspective. So, just a little there of an anchor of uh, why I'm passionate about this topic.
0: Right, that's that's a wonderful story with a, a personal touch to it, and thank you for sharing that. Um, sure. We met recently uh, where you served on a thought leadership panel, and you were discussing value-based care. That was the theme of that discussion. Uh, during that talk, you were asked, uh, how do medical practices overcome a, a less than positive history with payers? Uh, I wanted you to expound on that for our audience.
1: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, this is a tough one, and I, I think it really starts with changing the way we think about payers. We, we really need to think about them more in a partnership perspective, um, really in a collaborative sense. Um, so uh, some of the things that practices are doing are researching what payer goals are. Um, we recommend, you know, check out the websites, talk to leadership in these organizations, And what we find a lot is that we really, at the core, our goals are very similar, and that helps us understand how they align, and that that certainly is helpful to find the commonalities. Um, You know, the other other piece is to meet with payers. And sometimes this is possible, sometimes it's not. Um, It really depends on a number of factors, but it's really hard to dislike people up close. And the fact of the matter is these are just people at the payer. And when we build those relationships and make those personal connections, that face-to-face, body language interaction, there's no substitute for that. So in Relationship Improvement 101, that is um, one of the ninja moves that we see our clients that are successful definitely engaging in. Um, And then the other piece is really bridging the gap here. And what I mean by that is we have a, um, a program that we deploy with our clients called Good Catch where we are sharing success stories about their patients on a regular basis. And you know, on the payer side, when we're thinking about network development, we're really looking at what do we need to fulfill for this employer? How many orthopedists? How many hospitals? How many primary care physicians? So it becomes kind of a matrix and a grid exercise. And what we want, what we really need to do on the practice side is demonstrate our value. We're not just a number, we're on a grid, we are doing things for your patients that are keeping them out of the hospital, out of the ED, um, thinking about them holistically, and how do we tell that story? Well, we believe that it's bit by bit, story by story. So sharing that with payers really helps us um, personalize the care that we're delivering to their members and um, and really much more. Um, And then also establishing a value proposition is really important because on the practice side, We often don't take a lot of time to pause and take credit for all the good work we do. And value proposition work is something where our clients um, put this on paper and really dive down deep into what the savings are that they're delivering to payers and are able to tout their value. So that helps in relationship building as well. Um, and then uh, lastly, I'll say being proactive about, about the bumps. I mean, we all know when things are going to get rough. So thinking about it ahead of time and trying to build in methods for a smooth transition. You know, for example, when we, um, we have a new contract concept that we're thinking about and we're looking at measures in a performance-based agreement, put in some checkpoints so that we're not waiting a year to do a reconciliation talk about it in six months. So think about how we can minimize the, the pain of these new reimbursement models. That really helps from a relationship perspective all, all the way around as well. Those are just a few ideas for you.
0: Sure. Now, you mentioned something about certain stories that you've developed. Is there anywhere where our listeners can go on the internet to, to read those stories, download them, anything like that?
1: Well, um, we actually have a series of um, webinars that we do um, actually at MGMA, and we talk about value proposition development, and we have a lot of examples, and then with our payer contracting series, we, we have a segment on value proposition development, so those are places where we can demonstrate what that looks like and, and provide information around the steps to take, um, and we have one coming up. Uh, um, specifically talking about value proposition development and um, exploring different examples that we see practices using across the country.
0: Okay. Now you talked about the total cost of care and that was one of the next questions I wanted to ask you about. Value-based care is, uh, depending on (laughs) people's opinions, is a good or bad thing. But for many, uh, they're curious about the cost of it. And I wanted to ask you, in your research, have you found that uh, value-based care can reduce the overall cost of health care? What has your research shown you?
1: Oh, sure. Thanks. That's a, it's a great question. Um, so, I mean, if, you, if we think about it just intellectually, the more we move away from unit cost, which is everything we do, we get paid for, to paying for value, meaning we're aligning incentives and not counting widgets, um, we're we're going to be saving more because of, of really there's kind of two things that I think about. One is more services might not equal more money in a value-based world, and then two, we should be providing the right amount of care in the most cost-effective setting for a reasonable reimbursement. So those things together really really help us move um, or bend the cost curve, if you will. And and as practices, we should be more interested in sharing in the savings with payer. So we really need to move away from these fee-for-service discussions of I need a 2% increase on my fee schedule or a 7% increase on 992132. Let's talk about the savings that we provide by, by providing expanded access in our practice. We're reducing the cost of care and let's share in that savings. And that is going to help us sustain this transition. And I'd like to share just a couple of real tangible examples from clients that, that we serve here. Um, I've got a couple stories, if sure. that's okay, Daniel. No, I'd love that. Um, yes. Okay, so one of them is, here's how we're saving money. I've got an orthopedic group, and they have a value-based contract where they are sharing in the savings every time they're moving a case from an inpatient facility to an ambulatory surgery center. Because for this group, that saves, um, that saves everybody about $6,000 a procedure. So there we go, saving some dollars and payers sharing in the savings with the group. Um, on the PCP side, we have groups that are getting enhanced reimbursement for wellness visits and then also sharing in some bonus dollars from their relationships with clinically integrated networks and ACOs. Now how is this saving dollars? Because we're being proactive. We are screening folks for uh, diseases that we can be, if we catch them in the early phases, we are saving all kinds of dollars on the back end. A Little difficult to quantify, but we know that these screenings are are saving dollars because we're proactively addressing needs of a population. Um, and then I have a pediatric practice that recently implemented some depression screening for teens. Um, and they have been making referrals to mental health professionals. And so if you, and, and they're billing for collaborative care because this is what we want. We want collaborative care. So the pediatrician talking with the mental health professional and really thinking about that patient holistically. So here we go again. We're saving money potentially on medication. So instead of writing a script, we're putting that patient with a mental health professional. Maybe we're preventing a hospitalization. Um, we could be also pre- we could be enabling parents to be present at their job, so they're not missing work. So all kinds of benefits, definitely from a cost perspective as well. Um, and then in relationship to the story I shared initially, with um, the um, the savings from going to a surgeon and getting a surgery to the, surgeon, the surgery group actually being incentivized to um, recommend less invasive steps ahead of a surgery and not losing their shirt. Because the truth is, on the practice side, our fixed costs don't fluctuate. We still have to pay our staff. So we have to make sure that it makes economic sense for everybody. Um, and, and that's another, um, another thought around how we save dollars, uh, total cost of care when we move to value-based concepts.
0: Okay. Now, cost and revenue, are, they're huge and uh, huge points to keep in mind when talking about value-based care. I wanted to talk about another aspect, wellness. Tell us about health and wellness programs and medical practices. What have you seen or consulted on? What, what are some of the trends that you're seeing out there or some of the biggest challenges um, to successfully implementing them?
1: Oh, sure, sure. Um, I've got a couple of recent examples. Um, On the primary care side, we see a lot of folks that have implemented care navigators in their practices. or someone in that role. And these folks could be medical assistants, for example. They're really trying to manage gaps in care. So instead of I kind of liken it to being a catcher on a baseball team um, waiting for the patient, to arrive in the practice to treat them for their acute condition, reaching out and touching the patient, calling the patient, asking the patient to come in for their annual blood work, or did they get their screening colonoscopy? So really being more of a touch um, touch the patient to make sure that they're um, taking good care of themselves than waiting for the patient to arrive and uh, treating an acute episode. So that's something we're seeing from a, a trending perspective with primary care physicians for a number of reasons. Um, the other thing that we see practices doing is really getting their entire team involved. And I think that this is really cool because we're leveraging the skill set of the entire practice. So, you know, what this looks like in practices that I've worked with is it's, um, it's the, the folks rooming the patient that might be involved in uh, the the first parts of the diabetic foot exam and really being engaged in the team in team- based care so it's the physician it's the medical assistant it's the nurse it's the front office staff really thinking about it from a more of a global perspective is definitely helping from a, a wellness perspective um, and then you know it's interesting I have a client that's a, they're an internal medicine group and it's so impressive what they're doing from a wellness perspective, and if you ask the administrator you know what they do, and she says, we know our patients, and what she means is they really, really know their patients. You walk around that practice, and you'll see folks with little sticky notes on their PCs to remind a patient or to check in to see if they picked up their prescription. They keep very tight reins on what happens to a patient when they refer them to a specialist. Um, It is, they care for those folks, and these patients feel very, very cared for, which is why it takes a long time to get into this practice, but it's, it's incredible how um, cared for these individuals are, and they really think about all the details, and they have really good, what I like to call, close-the-loop processes, so if they're asking a patient to go see a specialist, they're making sure that they're calling that specialist and getting that report. Um, I, I heard one of the clinicians or one of the nurses actually say, "You know, I know Mrs. Smith is never going to go get that medication filled. What else do we need to do?" That's what she means when she says, "We know our patients." So they're not going to go prescribe some regimen that they know they're not going to um, that that they're they're not going to execute, um, which is just phenomenal the results that they get um, are really incredible. Um, Challenges you asked about so here are the top challenges I see in practices one is the the disparity in systems you know we still have a long way to go from a connectivity perspective we have you know hospital systems that have labs we can't always get to we have you know EMRs that aren't talking to each other um lots of information that doesn't flow back and forth in between systems and this makes a lot of this very challenging. Um, Also complex billing guidelines. I think this is something I'm seeing that's, I I know we're working really hard to resolve as an industry but there are a lot of things that we can be billing for that practices just don't bill for and then they're doing them and they're they're executing these steps but they just aren't really sure how to document they don't want to raise any red flags, and they're not getting the dollars in their practice to make them sustainable, um, and it's these complex billing guidelines that really, really are difficult. You know, an example of this is actually the um, annual wellness exam. Um, you know, I think it's like I just recently read that less than 20 um, uh, primary care clinicians actually are actually doing this on a regular basis. Um and if we were to improve that, I think that would really change a lot. Um, and then, kind of time is the big thing. What's the return on investment? And I know many articles suggest that the investment required for some of these quality programs were in, you know, it's it significantly out. is is very difficult and challenging for practices to deploy and execute all uh, all of these requirements for these for these programs. And it really sucks up a lot of time and energy. And then also lastly, payers sometimes are slow to adopt some of these alternative payment model, um, reimbursement models. And so that's, you know, that's disheartening because on the practice side, we're trying to be really creative and think about the patient holistically and do things like send the patient a lift if they can't get to the appointment so that we can make sure they don't go to the ED. How do we get paid for that? I have another practice that writes a very um, useful newsletter, Um, but the time it takes to produce that and send that out, how do we get paid for that? So there are still, we still have a a, a lot to do and there are a lot of challenges, but I do see a lot of work being done. Um, And I have a couple success stories if you want to, if you have time for those, Daniel.
0: Sure do. I would love to hear those, Doral.
1: Oh, great. Um, So I, uh, I work with the, Medical Society here in Buncombe County in Western North Carolina. And I've got two, a couple really cool success stories. Um, One is with their colorectal cancer screening. Um, This is a program where they provide cancer screening to uninsured and underinsured. And it's a partnership between the health departments and our local GI group. And, um, you know, it's incredible the results that they've had. They actually. Um, send patients these um, these kits for colorectal cancer screening. And their target, they want us for 80% of the population they're serving. And in the first year, they moved the needle from 35% to 67% compliant with these screenings. So, you know, you were asking earlier about cost and wellness. This is a great example of how working together, specialists and primary care, with a medical society is really making a difference in our community. Um, We have something similar here in this county with um, a breast and cervical cancer screening, another program, and um, they uh, last count treated over a thousand women, um, making sure that they're getting um, mammograms and cervical screenings, preventing all kinds of downstream costs. And you know, one of the things that I—it's just so exciting to me—is this work that we're doing now in social determinants of health. So here in Western North Carolina, we have this phenomenal program called Project Access, which it actually started in 1996 and has been replicated across the country. And they do a lot of work around social determinants of health, which are, you know, all the other things that—that that are um, circumstances for a patient there. Uh, food situation, employment situation, their housing situation, so it's looking at all of those determinants, and what they do is they are um, building a circle with the physicians in this community and sharing back that information, because one of the challenges to us, and I'll give you an example, you know, a pediatric practice might have a child that's got asthma, and this asthmatic child is ending up in the ED, you know, every other month, Lots of expense, time off for the parent, inconvenience I mean not not any way to live. maybe the origin of that is that they need um, they need to have their carpet replaced or their um, something to do within their housing arrangement so um, in in our county now we we have a network of resources that it 's not up to the practice to to do this, but just understanding how do we connect the resources and then how do we circle back and make sure that everyone is on the same page regarding what needs to happen and close the loop so that we can really address the need of the patient? That might not be a prescription or an office visit or a referral to a specialist. It could be a referral to a community health worker. So I think this is amazing because we are seeing how holistically looking at a patient we believe is really going to move the needle. And that's something that I know across the country we are we are working hard on. And um, those are just some success stories that, you know, I've been um, involved with recently.
0: Doral, thank you for sharing those. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you and we're going to have to get you on the podcast again sometime soon.
1: My pleasure, Daniel. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks again to Doral Jacobson, founding partner at Prosper Beyond. As a reminder, you can hear Doral speak live at the Data Conference on Saturday, May 18th. We have a special discount for podcast listeners. You can go to mgma.com slash datacon. That's data, C-O-N, all one word. Through April 16th, podcast listeners can follow that link and receive $200 off the regular registration price by entering the code podcast. Thanks again for being an MGMA Insider. I'm Daniel Williams.